Well, one of my favorite Disney movies growing up was uh, Robin Hood. You know, uh, the Robin Hood where Robin is a fox and his trusty sidekick, Little John, is that big bear that shows up in uh, Jungle Book. Anyone else like that movie, Robin Hood? I'm not the only one? Okay, good, good. Uh, it's, it's a good movie, right? Um, but Robin Hood is a children's movie, but it's also a commentary on life, isn't it? Uh, The premise of the whole movie is that this wicked king, Richard the Lion, is wealthy beyond his wildest dreams, but he's gained all of his wealth unfairly, either through inheritance from his royal family, but more importantly, by ripping people off in their taxes. He's amassed wealth beyond anything that he could ever spend. Meanwhile, the people that he's charged to care for are suffering with no food, and in a particularly sad scene, uh, we see a a family isn't even able to afford a gift for their little boy. Robin Hood knows he must do something about it, and so what does he do? He robs from the rich to feed the poor. See, that little fox knew something about the world that we can see all around us today. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The world around us is in chaos, right? Wicked people succeed while righteous people get passed by. Sickness strikes even the most kind and loving people that we know. Hardworking employees lose their jobs, and every day we read more news about the rich and famous and some sort of scandal or allegation against them. Chaos is all around. Things are not the way they ought to be, but it's not just on a large scale. It's in our own day-to-day lives, right? We help a friend study for a test, and then they do better than us. We help a coworker prepare for an interview, and then they get the promotion instead of us. I was healthy, but I got a bleak diagnosis. I gave, and someone else Took. And so our question this morning is this How can we thrive amidst the chaos of life? How can we thrive amidst the chaos of life? We'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes together. And unlike most sermons here at Crossview where we walk through one text, I'll be jumping around to a few different passages in the book. So if you'd like to follow along, uh, we'll start at the beginning of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 586. Otherwise, if you have an app on your phone, you can open that up. Or if you have our Church Center app, uh, all the texts will be right there in the sermon notes section. and You can follow along and take notes in that. So Ecclesiastes is a book that falls in the category of wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is a little unique. It's not quite like the rest of the Bible. It's not your typical narrative where you see a story played out, and it's not even like when Paul writes to us and says, here, do this. This is how you should live. It's not an exhortation like that. Usually, it's more descriptive than prescriptive, right? It observes truth about the world uh, and, the, and everything that's going on around us, and then it offers some general principles for living. So Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes make up sort of a triad of wisdom books, along with Song of Solomon and then some of the Psalms. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes all offer different perspectives on life, sort of three different views for us to hold up all as true, but then consider and let them shape us and our worldview. So the message of Proverbs, uh, as you know, is basically if you do good and wise things, then good will follow. 
If you live foolishly, well, then you should expect disaster and destruction to follow where you go. Put good in, get good out. That's the basic message of Proverbs, right? Well, then comes along good old Job, right? Job was a righteous man who loved God and who obeyed him and who did everything that he commanded, and yet God allowed his life to totally fall apart. Over a short period of time, he lost his wife and his kids and his land and his livestock and his health. Everything he had, he lost. Even his friends ultimately turned their back on him. Through it all, though, Job trusts God and remains faithful, and God gives him back sevenfold what he had lost. Well, Proverbs seems a little less neat and tidy when we consider Job, doesn't it? Right? Job put a lot of good in, but then got a lot of bad out for a really long time. So we start to see the principles of Proverbs challenged a little bit. It's not that they're not true, right? Proverbs is true, and it's right. It's just that Proverbs aren't an exact science, Ecclesiastes comes in, and he's like the realist, or some would even say the cynic of these three brothers of wisdom literature. Nothing makes sense in Ecclesiastes, as we'll see, and I think if we look at the world we live in, it's not hard to see why Ecclesiastes has this view, right? Human traffickers make crazy money while missionaries die. We see evil fools prosper and kind and wise men and women who can't seem to catch a break. The healthiest people we know get cancer, and the most unhealthy people we know live to be 90. We look around and we can't make sense of the world we're living in at all. So what do we do with that? Well, I think we read wisdom literature rightly. We see that God has given us multiple perspectives on this messy world, and so we read these books together and we hold them up as true, each of them, and we let them shape how we look at the world. We wrestle deeply with Scripture, especially what's here in Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, and we see that they can each offer unique perspectives on the world, and then we let those challenge our thinking and our behavior. And so this morning, I want to dive into Ecclesiastes and see what it has to say about the world, and then see if it can offer any help in understanding the very problems it points out. And so my hope this morning is that if you're in a situation that doesn't make sense to you, that you can't understand, that you just can't get a grip on, that the words of Ecclesiastes will help and be an encouragement. And just as a side note, we can hardly do justice to the uh, deep book of Ecclesiastes in one morning. And so if my words or the words uh, in this book pique your interest, I'd encourage you to go home and read the whole thing, uh, spend uh, extended time wrestling with this book. Because contrary to its reputation, it is a book full of hope and joy. You just have to know where to look. So what's our question? Remember, how can we thrive amidst the chaos of life? I think the first thing the author of Ecclesiastes or the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say is acknowledge the vapor of life. Famously, Ecclesiastes opens like this in verses 1 and 2. It says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. In another translation, you may be more familiar with, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. As you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that word repeated over and over and over again. This is vanity. That is vanity. All is futile. Everything is futile. The word behind uh, the English translation here is the Hebrew word 
Hevel, H-E-V-E-L, Hevel. And theologians wrestle with how to best represent that word in English. I think uh, one helpful way to think about it is it's this idea of smoke or a cloud. If you've ever been in thick, heavy smoke or in a plane uh, flying over a big cumulus cloud, it looks like you can reach out and grab it, right? But as soon as you do that, as soon as you try to grab that puff of smoke, it moves. You can't actually take hold of this thing that appears to have shape, appears to have borders, and appears to have some kind of density and sense of order to it. Life is like that the author of Ecclesiastes says. Just when you think you have a hold on it, it's gone. Vapor of vapors, vanity of vanities, hevel of hevels, all is hevel. We just can't get a grip on this life. He goes on and he explains it in verses 3 through 11. Let's look there. He said, What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. He says, what do we really gain in life? We live, we die, the earth keeps turning. The streams flow but never fill up the oceans. We're tired. We're always tired. Nothing is new. We live short, vapor-like lives, then we die, and nobody remembers us. Life stinks, and then you die. And then you're forgotten. You might be tempted to push back on me this morning and say that it's different for Christ followers, right? This isn't really true for us who follow Jesus. And you'd be partly right, but mostly wrong because the world works the same for me as it does for you. It's the same for the Christian and for the non-Christian. Unless Christ returns, the sun will come up tomorrow, the winds will blow, the streams will flow, and we will keep getting older until we die. As long as the earth lasts, this is how things are. So we can run from that or we can acknowledge it. How does acknowledging help us thrive in the chaos of this life? Because, friends, this life isn't all there is. It isn't all there is. And there's freedom when we recognize reality, right? That life is hard. It doesn't make sense. It's a vapor. It flies by faster than we can imagine. If you've got kids, you know this is true, right? Just yesterday, you were holding that brand new baby in your arms in the hospital, and now you're sending them off to school. And now you're watching them learn how to drive, and now they're moving out. Where did the time go? How did that happen? Novelist Terry Pratchett uh, was quoted in the Times as saying that inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. Inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. Life goes 
fast, but this life is not all there is. And so, if we want to thrive amidst the chaos of this life, we must first acknowledge the vapor of life and start living like our lives under the sun here on earth are not the only thing, like they're not even the primary thing, and that they go quick. Second, we must recognize that chaos exists. It's no secret, right, that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We just need to look around. And we talk about this all the time here at Crossview Church, how we live in this state of already but not yet, right? Because uh, as believers, because of the shed blood of Jesus, we are already declared righteous and we stand justified before God because his blood covers us and yet we're not yet saved out of the brokenness and sinful state of this world. We're still affected by our own sin and by the sin all around us. And so this section won't come as much of a surprise to you because we all know that life isn't how it's supposed to be. The world around us, though, tells us that if we just pursue certain things to their fullest end, they will in turn fulfill us, right? We'll be happy. Things will finally make sense. Not so, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes. You'll probably see four headings in your Bible for Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The CSB that I'm preaching out of this morning says the emptiness of pleasure, the emptiness of possessions, the relative value of wisdom, and the emptiness of work. Pleasure and possessions and wisdom and work. Ecclesiastes was written somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. Nothing has changed, right? Nothing is new under the sun pleasure and possessions and wisdom and work, we're still seeking satisfaction from those things today, two or three thousand years after the book of Ecclesiastes was written. We're tempted, as men and women were thousands of years ago, to think that pursuing these things will help fulfill us. Lucky for us, we don't have to continue on that path of pursuing these things because the preacher here says that he tried it. He tried all of those things and he took them to their bitter end. He says, and you can read this for yourself later, but he says, I built houses, I planted vineyards, I had servants and slaves, I had livestock and silver and gold and singers and concubines, all the delights of men. I surpassed the riches of all who were before me, and I found everything to be futile, to be hevel, and a pursuit of the wind. I'll be honest, uh, this one about pursuing possessions hits home a little bit for me, and maybe it does for you, I so often catch myself thinking, if I could just have that one thing, that one thing that I want, that one more thing that I don't have yet, once I get that, I'll be content, and then I'll never want anything again. I just need that one thing to fulfill me. But it never works, right? It never, ever works. I can save, and I can buy something, or I can do it on a whim, and I can impulse spend that money, and it doesn't matter. Things never fill me, no matter how badly I want them to. The preacher here took that all the way to the end. Wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. Entertained to no end. Intimate with whoever and whenever he wanted. He had everything our culture screams will fulfill us. And it was all empty. It was all hevel. He did the same thing with wisdom. He he was wise beyond what we can imagine. And then he sat and he pondered his own wisdom. And he concluded this in chapter 2. Verse 15. 
He says this, So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? The wise person, the fool, he says they both die and are forgotten. You can pursue the growth of your mind all you want and you will never be fulfilled. You, you might be tempted to think that you will, right? You look at people that are at the top of their field and they're brilliant and they have money and they have relationships and they have everything they could ever want. People like Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and Elon Musk and the late Stephen Hawking, these people with brilliant minds who have brain power so far beyond what we can imagine, who think so critically and who understand complex things so simply. Take it all the way to the end, they will die just like the fool. And they'll be forgotten. Even work, he says, is hevel, is futile, is a pursuit of the wind. He says in verse 18, uh, I, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. I work my whole life and I amass all this wealth and all these things and then in the end, I have to leave it to someone else and who knows what they'll do with it. Maybe they'll be a fool and lose it in a day. Not only that, but the one who throws himself into his work to get to the top of his field, his days are filled with grief. He can't sleep at night. He gets no rest because he's constantly thinking about work. Later, the preacher says that he works so much he has no time for important things like a family or friends. One pastor describes him like this. He's the man who would go to a dinner party with you and he would pay for the whole banquet hall to eat, but nobody wants to talk to him. Nobody wants to sit with him and, be, and he's okay with that because he'd prefer to eat alone anyway. Working hard all your life to achieve success and find fulfillment, he says it's futility, it's vapor, it's hevel. Things that should fulfill us don't. People who shouldn't succeed do. Success that should make us happy instead leaves us empty. Entertainment numbs us to painful realities rather than bringing us joy and happiness. It's chaos, right? Nothing plays out like we think it should. Life is like that smoke cloud. We think we have a grip on it. We think if we just get one more thing or if we just have that one more experience, or if we just get that raise and just get a little bit more money, then we'll be satisfied. Then we'll be happy. Just one more. And then that thing comes, or we have that experience, or we get that bump in pay, and we're left feeling as empty and unfulfilled as we were before we had it. But in some ways, we're even worse off because now we know that that thing we wanted could never satisfy us. It's chaos. It's chaos, right? And so how can we thrive amidst all this chaos? Well, first, we acknowledge the vapor of life. Second, we recognize that chaos exists. I said at the beginning of this message that Ecclesiastes is a book full of hope and joy. Have I convinced you of that yet? Uh, you grow old and die, and you'll never experience fulfillment in pursuing pleasure or possessions or wisdom or work, right? There's a lot of hope and joy uh, found in there. Well, Hang with me, okay? We're getting there. So let's look at uh, chapter 2, uh, verses, uh, starting with verse 24. 
He writes this, There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? He says, uh, number three, that we should look at our lives as gift, not gain. Enjoy life as a gift, not gain. He says there is nothing better than for a person to eat and drink and enjoy his hard work. Wait a second, but didn't he just get done saying that we'll never find fulfillment in pleasure or in work? Those things will not satisfy us. Well, he did, uh, but pay attention because there's a difference here. A few verses ago, he told us that pleasure and possessions and wisdom and work were all hevel when they were means to fulfillment, means to happiness, means to finding meaning in life. But now he shifts. He says, eating, drinking, and enjoying our work, there's nothing better for a person to do. Why? Because this is from God's hand. Who can eat and enjoy life apart from him? The preacher is radically challenging the call of his day and of ours to find fulfillment in these things and instead telling us that our fulfillment comes from enjoying God through the gifts that he's given us rather than trying to gain the world through them. There's a book that I uh, highly recommend you check out. It's called Living Life Backwards, uh, How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live Light in the End. Living Life Backwards. The author uh, is a man named David Gibson, and he writes about these verses uh, in that book. He says this, When we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that reality can stop us expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. Ordinarily, we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose, and very likely to make a reputation for ourselves and to achieve success. What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? What if it is death that shows us this is how we are meant to live? I think Gibson nails it with this section of his book. When we consider the vapor of life and recognize the chaos that's all around us, we can do one of two things. We can panic and we can seek fulfillment in, every, in wherever we go and we can try to milk our marriage or our job or our brain for everything that we want to experience fulfillment. Or we can face reality. We can look at the world around us and realize that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, let alone next year, and we can embrace life for the gift that it is. As Gibson writes, uh, rather than seeking fulfillment in making millions, we take a sober look at death and recognize that our ability to work is a gift. Our ability to make money is the ability to be generous and faithful to what God has called us to do with it. But It's not just money. If we look around, we see blessings all over the place, right? You can enjoy your marriage not for what you can get out of it, but for the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's meant to be. You can enjoy your friendships as the gifts of God 
that they are. You can enjoy food because God has made things that taste good. You can enjoy life as the gift that it is so you can enjoy God more. Not so you can find fulfillment in the things that he's created and given to you. If we want to thrive in the midst of the chaos of this life, we have to stop turning to that chaos for fulfillment. We have to stop looking to creation for satisfaction and instead start looking to our creator who has given us every good gift so that we might enjoy him more. Your life is a gift. It's not intended for gain. Acknowledge the vapor. Recognize the chaos. See your life as a gift. And finally, Ecclesiastes tells us how we might ultimately thrive amidst the chaos of this life. So uh, if, you are, if you still have your Bible open, if you turn with me to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, now we'll be looking at verses 9 to 14. And while you're turning there, uh, the end of Ecclesiastes, just as a note, shifts voices. So for almost the whole book, it's been the voice of this person called in the CSB, the preacher. Uh, he's been speaking and sort of giving his commentary on life, but now we get the voice of the narrator commenting back on all that the preacher has just said. So let's look together at Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14, to see what this narrator says. He writes this, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The final way we can thrive amidst the chaos of this life is to fear God and keep his commands. There are two quick things I'd like to point out in this section, uh, and then we'll close and go home. So first, uh, he says that the teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. Ecclesiastes has this unfortunate reputation of being a book that's hard to handle and that has this cynical way of looking at the world. But I think the author and the preacher in Ecclesiastes would defend himself by saying, no, it's not that I'm cynical, it's that I'm a realist. I'm simply pointing out the world for what it is. And in fact, you should take delight in the chance to see things as they really are. After all, death and this chaos that is life have a chance to shape your perspective in a hugely positive way. It says that his words are like cattle prods. In other words, sometimes the truth hurts. As you think about this book and as, uh, about these words, let them challenge you. Let them prod you. It might hurt. God might grab a hold of you and show you some pretty painful areas of your life where you're seeking fulfillment, and he might even tell you to knock it off. That might hurt, but Hebrews chapter 12 says this. It says, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let the Spirit of God discipline and challenge you through the difficult book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes the truth 
hurts, right? But the truth is also freeing. When we can finally come to a place where we recognize that all we have is a gift from God meant to be enjoyed, from the smallest taste of food to our final breath here on earth, when we finally come to that spot, we're free to enjoy life as we were intended to as God's beloved children. Second, uh, and finally, he says, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is for all humanity. Of the writing of books, there is no end. Much study wearies the body. In other words, you can spend your whole life reading and writing and pursuing an understanding of the chaos that is in this life, and you will never gain understanding. It will never make sense. Like a billow of smoke or a cloud in the sky, life cannot be grasped or fully understood. And so, what do we do? We fear God and keep his commands, living all for him, knowing that one day he will bring every act into judgment, and in doing so, make all things right. One day, when Jesus returns in glory, everything will be made right. No longer will we get sick. No longer will we experience the pain of an uncertain diagnosis. No longer will people be taken advantage of and used by others. No longer will chaos reign. One day, God will make all things new and bring all things, seen and unseen, good and bad, into judgment. For those who are in Christ Jesus, that day will be a day of glory as we see justice come and everything bad come untrue. A day of freedom as we're declared righteous in God's sight because of Jesus' shed blood on our behalf. But for those outside of him, it will be a day of reckoning like no other. And so let me encourage you this morning, if you've not yet placed your trust in God, if you've not yet turned to Jesus Christ for salvation, and instead you've been seeking hope elsewhere, make today the day that you turn to him. How can we thrive amidst the chaos of life? Don't waste another moment trying to fill up on things that are meant to be enjoyed as gifts from the only one who can ever truly satisfy. Let the words of Ecclesiastes and its sober look at reality bring you joy and hope as you begin to understand that this life is far from all there is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes and for the message of great hope that it provides because it points us back to satisfaction in you and you alone. We need your help to change our perspective on this life. We confess that far too often we seek satisfaction in created things instead of in you, our creator. By the power of your spirit, would you reorient our hearts? We thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that covers us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.